I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no god or devil, ominous and gibbous. And the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel The wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves. It is verily known by few, there were people, but it's mostly priests and women, it is told, whom he picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The Double Shadow, a Clark Ashton Smith podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we'll be covering the first half of The Colossus of Yalorn. And I'm very excited about it. I yeah. love this story with all of my heart. And so we are going to pronounce it Yalorn or Elorn. What did we decide? Yalorn. Um, okay. Just because it could really go either way. I don't know what Smith was thinking. But Yalorn works better for us English speakers. That's so true. Please don't hate us. What would the French pronunciation be? That's where it throws me. Um, the French Y can be flexible. It might probably is like, Elorn. Sorry. It can do the splits. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. It's a flexible Y. Get over it. So, Tim, what do we know about this story? Uh, what do we know? We know that it was written in 1932. It was first accepted to a magazine called Strange Tales in 1932, but that magazine folded before it could be printed. That's correct, right? Yes. Yep. Smith was very disappointed in that because um, at that point he saw Strange Tales and Weird Tales as the two places where he could try to sell his stuff. And so when it folded, it left um, Weird Tales and Farnsworth Wright as the one buyer on the market. So if one person didn't like the story, then it, that couldn't necessarily get published. thought that was a big problem. But it was finally published in Weird Tales in 1934. Yes, it turns out he didn't actually have anything to worry about with this story. I, mean, I, I thought it was interesting that, that that makes it basically almost two full years between the publication of uh, Maker of Gargoyles and this story, um, even though he wrote them only about a year apart. So I don't know. I, was, I, like, I find that interest, interesting just because I wonder what it would have been like to have been a Weird Tales reader in, 19, in the 1930s. Right. Like, if you would have been excited to see another Averone tale or if it would have just been... Like, or you wouldn't have even have noticed, you know? And I guess I don't have the answer. Yeah, well, that would have been rad, though, to see yeah. these these little disparate stories popping up about this same place. Um, the Nightshade edition of the book in the in their notes also says uh, that it was quote the most popular story in the June 1934 issue of Weird Tales, uh, but that that notation in the back of the of the edition isn't they don't really give a source for that, so I don't know how they know it was the most popular story. I mean, I I would have thought it was awesome if I had read it then. So yeah. I, I don't know, one can assume it was popular, but I don't I don't I would love to know how they um how they uh I guess qualify that that statement or uh, back it up. Perhaps letters to the editor. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, but it would be I, I don't know. I love the Nightshade editions. I just wish they had a quote uh, from the letter of the editor that was like some geek in 1934 <laughs> saying, oh my God, I absolutely love Colossus of Elorn. It's my favorite story of all time. <laughs> or at least of that issue. <laughs> well, I know it's a huge hit here at Double Shadow Studios, so. <laughs> I wish we had a studio. <laughs> we do. Let's pretend in our mind we have a studio. Uh, we 
this is also, you guys, our first story that features a proper necromancer. So yes. can we be excited about that? Yes. Yes, a proper ne- necromancer and an improper necromancer, oh, yes. actually. That's yeah. true. Double necromancer. Actually, <laughs> there's like a dozen necromancers in this story when you think about it. Double necromancer. <laughs> now we have hot, hot necromancer <laughs> necromancer action all night long. <laughs> At least there's no necrophilia in this one. I'm very happy about that. Yes. In a sense, though, when I was reading it, I experienced necrophilia <laughs> because I was loving those dead bodies so much. <laughs> But not in a sexual way, just in like a love kind of way. You so got anyway, necromantic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, necromantic. The other thing that I think is fascinating about the story, mm-hmm. and I don't – maybe we should talk about this at the end, but I'm just going to talk about it now because it's where I put it in the notes, is that, that we know from letters that in 1935, uh, Universal Pictures, the Hollywood people, uh, approached Clark Ashton Smith about some of his stories, um, and he sent them uh, Colossus of Ylorne and then a story we're going to be doing later called The Dark Eidolon. Um, and uh, – it seems like maybe Universal was somewhat interested because apparently um, Smith went to the trouble of uh, getting the film rights released from Weird Tales, um, but then uh, nothing came of it. I guess the studio changed management in 1935, and then they're like, screw it, we don't want your crazy tales. Uh, but I I really, really, really wish that Clark Ashton Smith's stories fell into the canon of, of the first generation of Universal monsters. Yeah, because cause that, that oh, was man. significant, right? Yeah, they're hugely significant, and you know, like they had just—they'd already made like Todd Browning had already made Dracula, and, and James Whale had already made um, both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, and it would have been amazing to see um, what they would have done with the story. How do you think that would have affected uh, Smith's recognition nowadays? Even though they probably would have completely changed the story, do you think that would have made him a lot more popular? Like the reason Dracula has traction is kind of because of those early movies in Nosferatu. Not that it's not a great story but yeah i mean i, I it's hard to say I, I i it would certainly be if they had given it the same kind of treatment that he i think it totally would have changed his level of popularity i mean i feel like he would be he'd probably be viewed as like a one of these stranger iconic uh <laughs> universe like i don't know what what the monster i guess the monster would have been the colossus or whatever but like oh yeah that would certainly be something that people would know about, you know, and, and maybe not everybody on the street, but like certainly people who like horror movies and are into Hollywood history and those kinds of things would, would, uh, would probably know all about him. Cause I've spent a lot of time just sort of sitting around thinking about this weird thing that never happened. Um, even if they had endeavored to make the movie and it had been a colossal, get it failure, <laughs> uh, that would be awesome too, because I don't know, like stories of, of, you know, rampant out of control, Hollywood production are always fascinating. So I just wish that something had come of it more than just like a letter back and forth. Uh, and now the tears I shed into my pillow every night. <laughs> well, just think, Phil, maybe you can option it from the Clark Ashton Smith estate. And um... <laughs> there we go. And then I'll get somebody to give me millions to make a uh, stop motion movie in the style yes. of the 1935 studios. <laughs> just cast me as Gaspard's girlfriend. Gaspard okay. is a loner, honey. He doesn't need a girlfriend. He's, if you're doing a 1930s style rewrite, he's got to have a love interest. He needs like, to have he a squeeze. The daughter of a local clergyman. But oh wait, these are Catholic. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, but, but he's a the, he's a sorcerer, so he does what he wants. I, I have to say, like, even not, not to get too specific, but the 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 evil antagonist in Bride of Frankenstein is played by this like very arch kind of campy uh, guy yeah. who would have made a great Nathair, even though he's not a dwarf. 
So there's lots to think about. Um, but maybe we should get into the story. Yeah. Okay. So what's this story about? How does it start? Part one, the flight of the necromancer. The thrice infamous Nathair, alchemist, astrologer, and necromancer, with his ten devil-given pupils, had departed very suddenly and under circumstances of strict secrecy from the town of Vion. It was widely thought among the people of that vicinity that his departure had been prompted by a salutary fear of ecclesiastical thumbscrews and faggots. Other wizards, less notorious than he, had already gone to the stake during a year of unusual inquisitory zeal, and it was well known that Nathair had incurred the reprobation of the church. Few, therefore, considered the reason of his going a mystery, but the means of transit which he had employed, as well as the destination of the sorcerer and his pupils, were regarded as more than problematic. So this story takes place in Vion again. Mm-hmm. After the cathedral's been completed, yep. it's a proper cathedral city. Uh-huh. Uh, and we know that apparently uh, there's been a bunch of witch hunts or wizard hunts because other wizards have been burned at the stake. <laughs> Which, <laughs> again, like I just love Beyond. I just yeah. love because yeah. I just wonder who are these other wizards? Yeah. And, you know, how were they caught and for what were they burned? Like, there's just so many interesting questions that come up in the, the cracks of the story. And that's, I think, the very first one is like, how many, how many necromancers can a city like Vion support? <laughs> right. I guess. A lot. It's a big city. Yeah. And there's a lot of need for the black arts, I guess. And Nasser has 10 pupils. 10 devil given pupils. It's a bustling market. Yeah. In, in the next part of the story, they, they sort of discuss how. The people of Vion know that Nathair has gone away, and and the, the first, again, there's a, like the story is so full of fascinating little details that speak to the larger world of Vion, and right. this is the first one I think where these characters don't have names, but they talk about how they know that his house is empty because two, I can only describe them as very brave thieves, yeah. have broken <laughs> in and found it empty, like totally empty, and and it sounds like it was kind of a bigger house. There's a lot of so there should be a lot of stuff in there. And nobody's seen them go in this place. There's nothing in there for the thieves to take. And this is the only mention of the thieves, yeah. which is amazing to me. Eleven guys evacuating a house is, is a, a big deal. Yeah. Or not evacuating it, but just appearing from yeah. it. Yeah, we so have this, uh, this thrice infamous Nathair is some kind of wizard necromancer who just up and leaves. It was said by the more devout and religious moiety that the Archfiend, with a legion of bat-winged assistants, had borne them away bodily at moonless midnight. There were clerics, and also reputable burghers, who professed to have seen the flight of man-like shapes upon the blotted stars together with others that were not men, and to have heard the wailing cries of the hellbound crew as they passed in an evil cloud over the roofs and city walls. So I guess they flew away? And also all their luggage with them. Yeah. yeah. I'm very impressed. Like, Nathair is clearly a necromancer who knows what he's doing because yeah. all of these other ones that get burned, whatnot. Nope. Not only does he disappear. Not only does he disappear with 10 of his pupils. Over the city walls, apparently, with fiends and whatnot. He takes all his stuff with him, yeah. too. This is a, a grade A sorcerer. This is the guy who knows what he's doing. I'd rather hire him than those man with a van things when you move. 
Yeah, I was going to say, he not only does he know what he's doing, he knows what he's doing with style. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And, and there's kind of interesting in a few other ways, too, in that he's not just a, you know, your ordinary tall guy like the, like uh, Hugh de Malembois, for example. Right. He's a dwarf. And they say that his mother was a dwarven sorceress and that his father was Alastor, god of revenge. Is it god of revenge or demon of revenge? Spirit. Oh, no, wait, no, demon. Yeah, Alistair, demon of revenge. Yeah, Kind of like Moto, the spirit of murder. Right. I bet they hang out and get beers on the weekend. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting that he's a dwarf. I actually liked um, uh, the the paragraph where Smith kind of gives a little background on Nathair, or supposed background, because nobody really knows, but they, they have rumors and suspicions that he had traveled in Orient lands uh, and learned from Egyptian or Saracenic masters the art of necromancy. Um, I also like that the people of Vion, and I would not want to live in this city, by the way, but they would go to him to to have their whatever their uh horoscopes read or their their futures told their fortunes told but then as soon as it became weird they mm-hmm. they started chucking rocks at him um where is it yeah. uh, once in the third year after his coming to vion he had been stoned in public because of his brooded necromancies but in the the sentence before he says many had sought his advice and assistance in the furthering of their own more or less dubious affairs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it kind of sucks to be him. He, he makes me think in this way somewhat of Blaise Renard from our previous uh-huh. story who looked funny and was just a little bit odd. And he wasn't nearly as odd, obviously um, that there is well eviler. Yeah. But this is almost like some parts of the story feel like an expanded version of Maker of Gargoyles where the antagonist and this in this case is a definite antagonist has much more agency and much more interest in the revenge part. But, but it's a similar story that people of Vion go up and get someone very talented and um spiritually inclined, you could say, and then it does not end well for them. Yeah. And this kind of, I, I mean, and we'll get to it when we do Zafik, but the Dark Eidolon kind of echoes this as well. Mm-hmm. That, that's This is neither the time nor place to talk about the Dark Ooh, Eidolon. It really does, though. Yeah. So this whole first chapter, I think, just does a really great job of setting up, uh, I mean, it sets up Vion again, and it's, it, it does a wonderful job of setting up Nathair as a as a figure that everybody's sort of gossiping about and wondering about. Yeah. Um, and they even have, I mean, I love the people of Vion. I mean, again, <laughs> following Tim, I probably wouldn't want to live there, but they just love to gossip and they love to like flirt with the dark arts and then just burn anybody instantly when, as soon as thing gets too hot. Yeah. Um, but they, they say, and this plays later into the story, that, that one reason he may have left aside from the Inquisition is that he may have read his own horoscope. I don't know if they use the word horoscope, but he may have like read the bones on his own life and saw that, that, he, um, that he was dying. Uh, and he may have just left because he wanted to die in peace, which seems like a really uh, a really optimistic view of what Nathair might be up to. But I like the idea that they're willing to um, they're willing to put it out there. Maybe he just maybe he just went somewhere else to die. You know who knows? Absolutely. But we also get our introduction to Gaspard Dunord. Who I'm I, gonna uh, swoon over here. I know. I picture if this was made into a movie now, Gaspard Dunord would be played by Ryan Gosling. 
<laughs> I can't agree with you there, but then I'm not really into Ryan Gosling. Like, I want to know uh, who Ruth would cast yeah. as Gaspar Noé. Ooh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Interesting. Huh. Young, not too young now, but young, slightly optimistic. You can see him as as you know, boy-faced and hopeful, and uh, having learned his lesson. So, who is Gaspar Dunord? Well, he used to be Nathair's, one of Nathair's ten apprentices, or however many he had back then. I don't know if he just keeps ten or what. But he is a student of the prescribed sciences who had been numbered for a year among the peoples of Nathair, but had chosen to withdraw quietly from the master's household after learning the enormities that would attend his further initiation. He had, however, taken with him much rare and peculiar knowledge together with a certain insight into the baleful powers and night-dark motives of the necromancer. Also a magic mirror. Yeah, he has a magic mirror that is that has as a border, was it it's uh, intertwined golden vipers or something? Mm-hmm. This guy has cojones. He stole Nathera's magic mirror when he left. Uh, it's pretty intense. He's, it's pretty brave, given uh, given Nathera's powers and abilities. And then this this chapter ends with a great uh, little tiny vignette of um, Gaspard in his like I don't know if they describe it as a small room, but we kind of learn later that it's a small room. Yeah, it's an attic, uh, an attic room, a sparsely furnished attic. Uh-huh. Uh, and he is gazing into his magic mirror. Wait, let me interrupt you for one second, yeah, Phil. Uh, where are you right now? Where am I? Yeah, like physically. Yeah. In my attic. Are you in a sparsely furnished attic? <laughs> uh, I am, in fact, in an attic, sparsely furnished room. Okay. It's true. I don't have... Uh, <laughs> I wish that I had a... Uh, a magic mirror, but not to look at your own comely and youthful, though subtly lined face. <laughs> See, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he'd be perfect for this. <laughs> I can't finish it now. You have to finish <laughs> I'm it. sorry. Okay. Right. He has this magic mirror. And he's looking into it, and he's seeing he's something. Hang on, yes, he's seeing. Yeah, it's uh, like a sinister glimpse is what it says. You do it. You're back on track. <laughs> uh, so Gaspard knows that that Nathar has left, and he's trying to use this mirror to see just where the hell this evil little dwarf went to. Uh, and he manages to summon the image, but only for a split second. He gets a sinister glimpse of Nathar's present activities, and then suddenly Nathar casts a counter spell. Uh, it's very D and D, and then uh, which occludes the mirror image in the mirror, and and um, Gaspard is left uh, as blind as he was before, just sort of ha- filled with a sense that something bad is happening, but he doesn't know yet the form or the name of what it might be. And that's pretty awesome. That would be a yeah. great scene in a film, right? Yeah. Especially with 1935 style special uh-huh. effects. I would see Nathair turning suddenly over his shoulder. Mm-hmm. He knows he's being watched. He raises his staff. He says a few words, and suddenly the mirror goes... Which takes us into part two. Part two. The Gathering of the Dead. Uh, so now we get a an actual date for when this is happening, right? It's, yes, it is happening in 1281. Uh-huh. So this takes place after... Maker of gargoyles by a considerable amount of years. Yeah, like uh, over a century, 140 odd years since Maker of Gargoyles. And I don't, I don't know. Um, I should have gone back to look at the description of Vion and Maker of Gargoyles to see if Vion had a, a wall 
uh, in that story. I don't, I don't remember. I don't think he ever went into that. Yeah, it, it definitely has a wall now, which yeah. is mm-hmm. slightly significant later on. And I tried to do a little bit of research into to see if there's any particular reason why Smith would have chosen 1281 uh, as a year, and I couldn't find much. The Pope authorizes a crusade against the Byzantine Empire, and that's really about the only interesting thing that I can find. So it, it feels a little bit arbitrary to me, like just sort of an amorphous medieval date. But if anybody can come up with a better rationale, I would love, uh, I'd love to know it. So uh, Nether disappears in late spring of 1281, and then in early summer, something starts happening in the region. It was found one day by gravediggers who had gone early to their toil in a cemetery outside the walls of Vion that no less than six newly occupied graves had been opened and the bodies, which were those of reputable citizens, removed. On closer examination, it became all too evident this removal had not been affected by robbers. The coffins, which lay aslant or stood protruding upright from the mold, offered all the appearance of having been shattered from within, as if by the use of extra-human strength, and the fresh earth itself was upheaved as if the dead men in some awful and timely resurrection had actually dug their way to the surface. The corpses had vanished utterly, as if hell had swallowed them, and as far as could be learned, there were no eyewitnesses of their fate. In those devil-ridden times, only one explanation of the happening seemed credible. Demons had entered the graves and taken bodily possession of the dead, compelling them to arise and go forth. I love that that's the only explanation. <laughs> With a missing necromancer on the loose, you know, oh, yeah, just demons. Yeah, demons. Of Nothing course. to do with that incredibly powerful necromancer that vanished in the middle of the night and I just, transported a ton of stuff. I just need to point out this sentence as being fascinating because... Let's say, he says, in those devil-ridden times. Yeah. Now, let's say this had happened in 2012. What, in our less devil-ridden times, what would our explanation possibly be? Like, I feel like in any... The zombies. It, yeah. Well, true. Sorry. But it, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is there aren't, there aren't that many explanations for, right, for this, right. regardless of whether it's a devil-ridden time or not. There's um, not a huge checklist of, for why the dead are rising. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I also like that, like, this sentence, to me makes it feel like he's trying to say they're wrong, but they're kind of dead on. No, they're I mean, absolutely dead on. This is like exactly totally what's right. happening. <laughs> yeah. And it's also interesting that, because in Maker of Gargoyles, he also talks about the Averone region being completely saturated with mm-hmm. monsters and devils. So, you know, it's just, of course, this is what happens. This is what Averone is like. It's devil-ridden. And this, of course, isn't the only time that this happens. That Many corpses uh, are found to be missing, and it turns into a bit of an epidemic. I mean, it's not unlike the epidemic of gargoyle-related murder that happened in Maker of Gargoyles. It's just a thing that starts to happen over and over again and just sort of, you know, once again strikes fear into the hearts of everybody in Vion. But it's not all of the corpses. Tell us what makes them, uh, that, that links all the cases. <laughs> In every case, the missing bodies were those of young, stalwart men who had died but recently and had met their death through violence or accident rather than wasting illness. Some were criminals who had paid the penalty of their misdeeds. Others were men-at-arms or constables slain in the execution of their duty. Knights who had died in tourney or personal combat were numbered among them. And many were the victims of robber bands who infested Vion at the time. There were monks, merchants, nobles, yeomen, pages, priests, but none in any case who had passed the prime of life. The old and infirm, it seemed, were safe from the animating demons. 
So it's only the young and the healthy that are affected by this crazy epidemic of <laughs> of risen corpses, and only men too, which is yeah. uh, strangely uh, misogynistic of whatever <laughs> demons are out there. There are strong women. I mean, so yeah, so they get up like zombies, right? And they're sluggish and they're moaning. Nope. What? No, that is not correct, Tim. Oh no! In fact, the newly cemented corpses leapt from their beers or catafalques. And disregarding the horrified watchers, ran with great bounds of automatic frenzy into the night. Automatic frenzy, guys. I know. It's so good. <laughs> it's so damn good. Before but, there were running zombies, there were these. Yes. Yeah. Whatever they are. And I just like automatic frenzy makes it sound like <laughs> they stand up and they scream and they flail their arms in the air and just bolt for the nearest door. It's amazing. It's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not what you want your dead dad to do, I guess. I mean, it's still pretty notably bizarre. Yeah. And uh, here we get another another theme that Smith seems to be very keen on in all of his stories. In fact, in mm-hmm. each story that we've read, this has come up, how the church is completely and utterly powerless to stop this. No matter what they do, they can't halt it. They can't stop it. They can't slow it. They're completely powerless yes not unlike in gargoyles right they try exorcisms they try holy water on the bodies it's the same thing uh i like that 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 in my mind because the people of vion are are a little bit hysterical he says even the most liberal sprinkling of holy water in my mind they're just taking (laughs) corpses and just dumping them into vats of holy water like it's not a sprinkling it's like we're just going to saturate them in holy water and hope they don't get up and then of course they do uh, like in Gargoyles, again, everybody sort of thinks this is like the world's ending. Right. Basically, people go a little bit bonkers about it. Um, and they're all too scared to bother to follow these crazy running zombies. <laughs> so nobody really knows for a while exactly where they're going. But fortunately or unfortunately, they start running into travelers who are on the road and just have these leaping, bounding corpses start yeah. coming by. Like They come by either singly or sometimes they're in groups, which mm-hmm. is also awesome to me. Like occasionally you might just see one and occasionally you're like, oh, look, it's a traveling party of 10 minstrels. Oh, no, wait. Oh, it's wait. 10 <laughs> running ghouls. Liches. Yeah. Uh, Fortunately, they're not paying attention to anything. No, they're, they're totally stopping and they're totally insensate. The general direction of their flight, it seemed, was eastward, but only with the cessation of the exodus, which had numbered several hundred people, did anyone begin to suspect the actual destination of the dead. This destination, it somehow became rumored, was the ruinous castle of Yalorn, beyond the werewolf-haunted forest in the outlying semi-mountainous hills of Averon. Yalorn, a great craggy pile that had been built by a line of evil and marauding barons, now extinct, was a place that even the goat herds preferred to shun. The wrathful specters of its bloody lords were said to move turbulently in its crumbling halls, and its chatelaines were the undead. No one cared to dwell in the shadow of its cliff-founded walls, and the nearest abode of living men was a small Cistercian monastery more than a mile away on the opposite slope of the valley. Cistercians are kind of especially cloistered people. They're not just Benedictines like our liberal group of Benedictines in um, the end of the story. Right. Uh, some Cistercians nowadays, they sort of split off from the main order, but are Trappist monks. They're very quiet. They're very reserved. They take lots of vows of silence. So they're not gossiping a lot about what they're seeing. But what kind of forest is it by? 
<laughs> you fool. Of course there are werewolves. <laughs> it is a werewolf haunted forest. So there's got to be a werewolf in this, right? Not really. Not really. Yeah, it's just name, another werewolf tease for Phil. By name only. <laughs> but I also uh, love that uh, that it was a place that even the goat herds preferred to shun. Because you know those goat herds. They'll go anywhere. <laughs> the goat herds, uh, in a sense... Well, that, that's not actually true. I was going to try to make a pitch for the goat herders as heroes of the story, but then I realized that no. it doesn't make sense. So. <sighs> <laughs> we'll scratch that. <laughs> All of the dead are heading to Yalorn, this rundown castle of ill repute. But the monks don't see the dead going in, not at first. They just think it's a little bit weird going on over there. They notice that there are... Flaring lights where lights should not have been. Flames of uncanny blue and crimson that shuddered behind the broken, grown embrasures or rose starward above the jagged crenellations. Hideous noises had issued from the ruin by night. A clangor as of hellish anvils and hammers, a ringing of gigantic armor and maces, mephitic odors as of brimstone and burning flesh had floated across the valley. And even by day, when the noises were silent and the lights no longer flared, a thin haze of hell-blue vapor hung on the battlements. Next room on paint, by the way, hell-blue. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is this is classically a Clark Ashton Smithy passage where he sort of runs through an array of senses yeah. uh, mm-hmm. to give you a really um, evocative portrait or, or picture of, of an atmosphere and, and a hint of what's going on. It reminds me, for no, well, I guess for a particular reason, of that Tom Waits song, What's He Building in There? Yeah. Because you have to start to wonder, what are they building in there? We have a right to know. Actually, they they don't think that they do. Yeah, they they see it and they're just kind of like, oh man, that place is abandoned. The devil is up to some in there. We're going to stay on our side of the valley and wait it out. Be more pious. Yeah, we're going (laughs) to. We're going to pray harder. Because that always works. And again, this is another place where Smith is setting up the church people versus the uh, necromancers. Mm -hmm. And they started to hear the rumors that there are bodies just walking out of beyond. And so they start to watch. And sure enough, bodies are kind of converging en masse at Ymorn. Hundreds of these liches, they swore, had filed beneath the monastery. That's such a terrifying thing to see late at night. And especially given the fact that it's kind of far away, to me, makes it scarier for some reason. Just because there's this weird, like, it's not an immediate threat, but it's like the promise of a horrible threat to come. Yeah. It just makes it really unsettling to me. And that's why I'm not surprised that one of their monks, uh, Theophile, gets totally wasted on their wine. (laughs) And then falls on the rocks outside and breaks his neck. I assume he was probably like watching liches at the time. This this is a awesome side character. I guess we'll call him number two in the story. Right. If our two thieves were the first, drunken theophile is awesome side character number uh, number two. Awesome just for being a guy who just loves to drink. <laughs> you know, he's just a monk who likes to have a good time. I think he's really depressed. I think he's terrified. So he's trying to drink not to think about the fact that there are these freaking zombies, liches, walking by his abbey every day, and that Vion, ha- or yeah, nobody in Vion has been able to stop it. it. It does say that perhaps, no doubt he had tried to drown his pious horror at these untoward happenings. Uh, pious horror. But then it goes, the, the sentence is phrased thusly, no doubt he had tried to drown his pious horror 
at any rate after his quotations. So the narrator doesn't really even know. The narrator's just hypothesizing that maybe he was trying to drown us. I like to think of Theophile as the party animal of the monastery. (laughs) His neck is broken, and they start saying the mass for him. And kind of like in Maker of Gargoyles, where they're saying the mass for the abbot, and the gargoyle just breaks in and extinguishes all the tapers and whatnot. These masses in the dark hours before morning were interrupted by the untimely resurrection of the dead monk, who, with his head lolling horribly on his broken neck, rushed as if being ridden from the chapel and ran down the hill towards the demon flames and clamors of the Lord. I love this because of the phrasing untimely resurrection of the dead monk, which strikes me as a really, like, as a comedic way to say this. Like, if he had done it at a different time, maybe it would have been okay. But the fact that he did it now, like, I don't I mean, know. There seems to be kind of an irony, an amused irony at, at, its, at itself in that line, which I like. Well, we know he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Right. That's true. And this just happens to be the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, it's untimely. <laughs> and again, it doesn't say that he screams, but in my mind, it's like he wakes up, like, tongue lolling out of his horribly oh, lopsided mouth. And just lets out like a horrible falsetto scream and then runs out of the chapel. Yeah, I, I, it's it's actually a really terrifying image. At least this spurs the monks to action, which takes us to our third part. Part three, the testimony of the monks. So now we have our two hero clerics. Which is our, our next awesome side, side character. Yep. Two lusty monks, Stefan and Bernard. They want to do something about it. They want to find out. They want to investigate and bring the fight to the, the demons. They get leave to do so, and they grab their aspergillises, uh, their flasks of holy water, and uh, great crosses of hornbeam as Smith states it, such as would have served for maces with which to brain an armored knight. So these guys are badasses. But, uh, this is my question. Now, are by Hornbeam Cross, like, are, are those ornamental, like, Christian crosses that they're just taking to use as weapons, or are they weapons that just happen to be in the shape of a cross? Yeah. I think that they're just plain crosses. But they're just That's heavy, and you could, you could beat a dude in a face. <laughs> Yeah, they're just made out of a really heavy wood, so they've got an extra duty. Who would play Bernard and Stefan in the movie? I would play them both. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. It would be the worst performance. (laughs) You can't even imagine. And they're kind of ballsy dudes because they sneak into Yalorn, they see the fires, and they just go in chanting and exorcising. They're not like going sneakity, sneak, sneak. They're just going in, you know, by the power of Christ and all of that stuff. And they walk straight into the uh, straight into the scene of all of this chaos. And they're still chanting and exorcising. These monks clearly have never played Dungeons and Dragons. No. Like you just, <laughs> nobody enters a room this way. <laughs> well, this is this is interesting. This this section approaching the doorway, the brothers beheld a gleaming of red fires within, like the eyes of dragons blinking through infernal muck. They felt sure that the place was an outpost of Erebus, an antechamber of the pit, but nevertheless they entered bravely, chanting loud exorcisms and brandishing their mighty crosses of hornbeam. So essentially, they believe they're entering hell, and they just do it. That's that's faith. That That's true, yeah. Forget Gaspard, I love these guys. <laughs> no. <laughs> A monstrous scene was limbed before them. 
with ever-growing details of crowding horror and grotesquerie. Some of the details were obscure and mysteriously terrifying. Others, all too plain, were branded as if with sudden, ineffaceable hellfire on the minds of the monks. They stood on the threshold of a colossal chamber, which seemed to have been made by the tearing down of upper floors and inner partitions adjacent to the castle hall, itself a room of huge extent. The chamber seemed to recede through interminable shadow, shafted with sunlight falling through the rents of ruin, sunlight that was powerless to dissipate the infernal gloom and mystery. The monks averred later that they saw many people moving about the place together with sundry demons, some of whom were shadowy and gigantic, and others barely to be distinguished from the men. These people, as well as their familiars, were occupied with the tending of reverberatory furnaces and immense pear-shaped and gourd-shaped vessels, such as were used in alchemy. Some also were stooping above great fuming cauldrons like sorcerers busy with the brewing of terrible drugs. Against the opposite wall, there were two enormous vats filled with stone and mortar, whose circular sides rose higher than a man's head, so that Bernard and Stefan were unable to determine their contents. One of the vats gave forth a whitish gleaming, the other a ruddy luminosity. Near the vats, and somewhat between them, there stood a sort of low couch or litter made of luxurious, weirdly-figured fabrics such as the Saracens weave. On this, the monks discerned a dwarfish being, pale and wizened, with eyes of chill flame that shone like evil barrels through the dusk. The dwarf, who had all the air of a feeble moribund, was supervising the toils of the men and their familiars. The dazed eyes of the brothers began to comprehend other details. They saw that several corpses, among which they recognized that of Theophile, were lying on the middle floor, together with a heap of human bones that had been wrenched asunder at the joints, and great lumps of flesh piled like the carvings of butchers. One of the men was lifting the bones and dropping them into a cauldron beneath which there glowed a ruby-colored fire, and another was flinging the lumps of flesh into a tub with some hueless liquid that gave forth an evil hissing as of a thousand serpents. Others had stripped the grave clothes from one of the cadavers and were starting to assail it with long knives. Others still were mounting rude flights of stone stairs along the walls of the immense vats, carrying vessels filled with semi-liquescent matters which they emptied over the high rims. Yikes. Um, it it's just, a bad scene. It is a bad scene. It just hit me uh, listening to that. Uh, Theophile would be translated as what? God lover? God lover, yeah. That's, lover of God. And gosh, now he's stuck like this. That's really terrifying. So they see these demons have cored out this castle to make it just one big chamber, and they got giant vats with with glowing liquid in them. They're cutting up dead bodies and chucking them into the vats. It's it's such an impressive vignette. Like I can't even I can't even think of a scene like this in anything else I've read, I don't think. Because usually it's sort of like, you, you know, you have your monster and your monster's kind of your monster. I mean, it's a little bit like a like a, a blowing up of, of like the Frankenstein conceit in some sense. Right. But it, it's also still just, it's like one of those weird, um, I don't know, like it's almost out of something, like almost out of Ronis Bosch or something, or right. um, mm-hmm. like some weird medieval demon obsessed woodcut. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just so awesome here's my my i don't know i don't want to call it a theory 
my idea about why uh, Clark Ashton Smith truly deserves to be like in the triumvirate of the uh, of the weird fictionists because you have Lovecraft, who's the uh, the one who's who's obsessed with the veracity and creating these worlds that could be real with these monsters that also happen to be in it. And then you have Howard, who's barbarians and ancient sorcery and also like adrenaline pumping stories. But then you have Smith, who is all about, and and you used this phrase last time, Phil, in Maker of Gargoyles, he's all about escalation. It's not about he'll start out with horror and then he'll build on that horror and he'll just keep making it worse and worse. So he starts out with bad things and then it's all about how bad can I make this? How (laughs) awful can things get before everybody just gives up? I agree with that theory. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think he belongs in the canon for a number of reasons and not just because of his, um, because he knew them. You got to, but uh, right. definitely he takes a situation and uh, yeah, just like plays it totally to the hilt, which is pretty. Uh, that's pretty cool. So the monks, after seeing Theophile being, uh, <laughs> I don't even know, like, what verb would you use to describe what they're doing to the bodies? The English language fails me. Yeah. I, have no, I have no idea. Yeah, they're completely desecrating. Yes, yeah, yeah, desecrating. Absolutely. But but also like it's it's like some kind of weird body horror alchemy where they're like taking the bones and the flesh and putting them in these big bubbling this big hor- like it's like a horrible chemistry set or yeah. something. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're literally melting down bodies. Yeah. Uh, what do they call that in um smelting? No, no, for like there's an actual word like when they they melt down like animal bones and animal fat. I think they use it when they're making soap. There's a there's a specific. Oh word. right. Maybe I'll remember. If only he were making a specialty line of soaps. Right. Yeah. I don't think that's what he's doing. Right. No, he's not making a giant bar of soap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they see the body of their dead brother, and not unlike before, instead of saying we're gonna go back and get more monk help. They're like, screw it, it is on. And they like run they run into the middle of this, brandishing their holy water and their I guess I'm assuming they have holy water because they have the aspergillum. Right. Yeah. Um, and their crosses. And on the way in, they catch the sight of our next awesome side character, who's already dead, but his name is Jacques Le Lucaru. And Lucaru, do you want Ruth, do you want to tell us what his last name means? <laughs> His name is Jack the Werewolf. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and oh. he is an... Oh, no, sorry, Tim, tell us about Lugaru. Uh Well, first, it, it's called rendering when you uh, boil oh, down okay. fat. Ah. Yeah. First of all, Jacques Le Lugaru is my favorite character in the story. Also, I think that all the mentions of Loop Guru in the stories <laughs> were about him and his clan. I don't have anything to back it up. <laughs> But he's a he's a notorious outlaw, uh, and he had been slain a few days previous in combat with the officers of the state. Um, he was noted for his brawn and cunning and his ferocity, and he had long terrorized the woods and highways of Averone, which I guess there is my proof that any time he mentions a werewolf haunted forest, it's Jacques Le Loup Guru. Exactly. This, this is uh, I just love it. Like yeah. there's no. 
uh, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is. There's no reason to give us this detail, no. but he does. And I, it just fills me with love yeah. that I have this bizarre side story in the middle of this hellish scene. And suddenly I'm thinking to myself exactly what Tim is saying. Like, well, is he the werewolf that everybody's talking right. about? Like, what's what, his story? What, what's going on there? Uh, his great body had been half eviscerated by the swords of the constabulary and his beard was stiff and purple with the dried blood of a ghastly wound that had cloven his face from temple to mouth. He had died Ew. unshriven. Nevertheless, the monks were unwilling to see his helpless cadaver put to some unhallowed use beyond the surmise of Christians. So he's a giant naked dude with his face cut open. I just I can't help but think like a lesser a lesser writer would have just said and there was another corpse because his his well, well what happens we'll say but right. like it does we don't we don't need to know his name we don't need to know that he's this like notorious giant, outlaw yeah <laughs> who just happens to have been killed a couple of days prior right uh, uh, okay. so anyway yeah, so what happens next <laughs> they are very loud um, monks they they come in running and exercising and. Um, now there spots them. Gee. Surprisingly. Wait, I just pictured them exercising, like doing calisthenics <laughs> into the room. They're, they're no. lifting their hornbeam staffs like, <laughs> like dumbbells. So after Nathera spots them, he lets out an incantation and suddenly some of his minions um, grab this liquid. And we don't know what it is. It's not permanently damaging, but they throw it on them and it temporarily blinds them. And they freak out and they pass out. And when they wake up, they're bound up and Nathair is taunting them. This is the best line ever written in the English language. I'm just going to throw that out right now. I defy anybody to come up with a better... Uh, I can't even stand by that. It's not the best, but it is awesome. It is, it's one of the best. Top yeah. ten at least. Read it for us. Nathair says to the bound monks, Return to your kennel, you whelps of Yelbao, and take with you this message. They that came here as many shall go forth as one. And it's awesome. Now, this statement I find fascinating because Yeldabaoth is a name that comes from, like, like, apocryphal or Gnostic Christianity, basically. And it's, like, what you would call God if you viewed him to be a cruel and horrible creator of the universe. I, I, I said in our show notes that it's a little bit like what you might call God if you're on Satan's side. And I'm not like I'm not entirely up on my history of, of how that name enters into um, I don't know not common knowledge but but even scholarly knowledge because it, it appears in the um, in the Apocrypha of John and some of the other books that were found at Nag Hammadi but that wasn't found until 1945 so that's 15 years after this um, I think that Clark Ashton Smith probably got the name from the Pistis Sophia which is um, like a, a Gnostic text that was found. Um, I think in the 18th century. Uh, but it's a, I think it's a pretty fascinating detail, and it's interesting because it, like, to me at least, it, it's Smith sort of saying that the Thayer isn't, he's not a simplistic Satanist, he is like a philosophic Satanist or something. Like he genuinely views God to be in the wrong uh, and himself in the right, I think. Um, and I might be reading a little bit too much into the, his use of that name, but that's what I get from it, and I think it's really awesome. Yeah, it's a great little detail. Great stuff. Um, and I would, I mean, I would absolutely love to know. Like, I, I unfortunately wasn't able to do too much research into how that that word, like I was saying, you know, how Clark Ashton Smith would have come across it or what it would have meant to him exactly. But I would love to know where he stumbled across it and and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, but beyond that, he he drops a great hint about what's to come. 
They that came here as many shall go forth as one. And then we see something kind of interesting after he's done this, because they talked, you know, about the idea of these demons entering the bodies, and that's the surmise of all of the Fion Uh uh, residents. And he speaks a dreadful formula, and two of the familiars who were currently like shadowy beasts enter the bodies of Lelukau and Brother Theophile. And suddenly they take possession of those bodies from the inside and get up and, well. Then, when the demons had completed their possession, the bodies, in a fashion horrible to behold, were raised up from the castle floor, the one with the raveled entrails hanging from its wide wounds, the other with a head that dropped forward loosely on its bosom. Animated by their devils, the cadavers took up the crosses of hornbeam that had been dropped by Stefan and Bernard, and using the crosses for bludgeons, they drove the monks in ignominious flight from the castle. Amid a loud, tempestuous howling of infernal laughter from the dwarf and his necromantic crew, and the nude corpse of Leloup Garou, and the robed cadaver of Theophile followed them far on the chasm-riven slopes below Yalorn, striking great blows with the crosses, so that the backs of the two Cistercians were become a mass of bloody bruises. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I I love uh, I love the 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 corpses in this story. <laughs> like, I love a nude a nude man and a, and a robed uh, monk. Like beating these poor, <laughs> yeah, a nude these... man with his with his guts hanging out, yeah, and with the, a dwarf howling at them with his necromantic crew, who I picture like a rap crew, kind of. Gosh, <laughs> yeah. Now, what's interesting about the monks is that when they get back, instead of sounding the general alarm, they are very Cistercian. They're very reserved to their monastery, and so they just go about their business, but more so. The whole monastery thereafter devoted itself to triple austerities and quadruple prayers. That I find hilarious, too. It's like they didn't just double. They tripled them and they quadrupled them because what else are they going to do? <laughs> um, actually, here, this is why the goat herds are the, are the heroes of the story. Right. Because if, if the goat herds hadn't – basically, I guess the monks speak to the goat herds. So if they hadn't done that and the goat herds hadn't made their way back to Vion, then uh, nothing of the later story except the horrible bits would have happened. The, so there you go. The last um, little paragraph of this section I kind of felt was a little weird. Um, I'll just read it quick. Everyone felt, however, that some gigantic menace, some black infernal enchantment was being brewed within the ruinous walls. The malign moribund dwarf was all too readily identified with the missing sorcerer, Nathair, and his underlings, it was plain, were Nathair's pupils. Like, I wonder if he thought we wouldn't get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a, now, now there, maybe we would think that there are two dwarves and be confused. I don't know, unless he just wanted to uh, add some kind of black cloud before going into the next. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like... Like, almost like a, like, tune in next week for... Yeah, and it, I mean it, it, it. It's sort of that those lines feel a little bit like they're supposed to be. They're supposed to let us know that the people of Vion knew oh, what right. we know. Okay, that's good. Right. I think this 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 story and um, well, all all the Everone stories, like, and we talked about it a little bit in the last one, like their relationship to Christianity. I really find fascinating because they're not 
outwardly anti-Christian, but he does take the opportunity to poke fun at the church and at the behavior of, of the of the pious kind of whenever he can. Like that's why I really think that this like doubled or was he say tripled austerities and quadrupled prayers is meant as a as a jab. Like <laughs> like as a little bit like oh those silly Christians didn't do anything except pray harder. Right. Um, but it's not it doesn't feel malicious to me necessarily. It just feels a little bit like he's using them as a source of um, a like they're impotent. Joke. Yeah, exactly. And 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 like played as sort of like a soft joke or something. Yeah, I mean, once once I, I wish I wish there was as in depth a collection of his letters as there was of Lovecraft. Yeah. Or that I mean, maybe he wasn't as much of an epistolarian, if that's the right word, as Lovecraft. But it would be fascinating to know a little bit more of his, uh, you know, what the belief system was that was informing some of these decisions. Anyway. So yeah. So now we're going into our the last section we're going to be covering in this podcast, and then we'll pick up the last four sections in the next one. Part four, the going forth of Gaspard du Nord. So I picture, because it starts out alone in his attic chamber, Gaspard du Nord, student of alchemy and sorcery, blah, blah, blah. But I picture him uh, doing push-ups shirtless in his attic chamber. <laughs> but he's like Travis Bickle now? Is yeah. that what's going on? I'm curious about the time frame. Like how long has he been trying? So what he's doing basically is he's still trying to see what Nathera is up to. Um, but it's not really clear how long he's been trying to see it. And I'm wondering if he just comes home every night after whatever it is he does for a day job and like checks his, his mirror, like one would check an answering machine or something. <laughs> Actually, this is interesting. What he, what he's done here is jump back in time. Because mm-hmm. if you look at these four paragraphs, it starts alone in that chamber, which is actually probably the exact same scene that he ended the, the first part with. Right. And then Gaspard reads in the stars that something bad is going to happen. And then it says, in, in the meanwhile, the hideous resurrection and migration that was taking place. So oh, this is right. still mm-hmm. back when that's happening. And then that stops. And then he finally, after the monk bit that we just heard, he finally hears in early, it says, after the horror had apparently ceased in early midsummer, there came the appalling story of the Cistercian monks. So finally, after this whole monk thing happens, Gaspard has, he's described as the long baffled watcher. He finally has an inkling of um, not exactly what's going on, but he definitely knows at least where Nefer has gone and where all the dead and all that all the dead have also gone with Nefer, which is enough for a hero like Gaspard de Nord to start unravel the mystery. Right. He's just so awesome here because his he's not well off. He's not famous or anything. He tries to keep that whole necromancy thing under wraps and his father disowned him. And so he only has as much money as his mother and sister bring him. So he can't afford a horse. He can't become our knight riding off. He's got a a wallet of food and a dagger. And he just says, all right, I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk through the werewolf haunted forests of Vion. After traveling for a while, and it's a good 40 miles, so it takes him more than one day. He gets to the castle and he does the proper sneakity sneak, sneak, sneak. He finds this these stairs that lead up to an old ledge. And so he thinks, well, I can get a really good view from up here. He's sort of seen what the monks have already seen, but he wants to get more details. Cautiously, he neared the large ragged opening through which the light poured upwards. Crouching on a narrow ledge, he peered in on a most astounding and terrific spectacle, whose details were so bewildering that he could barely comprehend their import till after many minutes. It was plain that the story told by the monks, allowing for their religious bias, had been far from extravagant. 
The vast chamber was fitfully illumined by the glare of Athenor's embrasures, and above all by the weird glimmering from the huge stone vats. Even from his high vantage, the watcher could not see the contents of these vats, but a white luminosity poured upward from the rim of one of them, and a flesh-tinted phosphorescence from the other. Gaspard had seen certain of the experiments and evocations in the Thayer. Within certain limits, he was not squeamish, nor was it likely that he would have been terrified overmuch by the shadowy, uncouth shapes of demons who toiled in the pit below him side by side with the black-clad pupils of the sorcerer. But a cold horror clutched his heart when he saw the incredible, enormous thing that occupied the central floor, the colossal human skeleton a hundred feet in length, stretching for more than the extent of the old castle hall. The skeleton whose bony right foot, the group of men and devils, to all appearance, were busily clothing with human flesh. The prodigious and macabre framework, complete in every part, with ribs like arches of some satanic nave, shone as if it were still heated by the fires of an infernal welding. It seemed to shimmer and burn with unnatural light, to quiver with malign disquietude in the flickering glare and gloom. The great finger bones, curving claw-like on the floor, appeared as if they were about to close upon some helpless prey. The tremendous teeth were set in an everlasting grin of sardonic cruelty and malice. The hollow eye sockets, deep as Tartarian wells, appeared to see it with myriad mocking lights, like the eyes of elementals swimming upward in obscene shadow. Gaspard was stunned by the shocking and stupendous phantasmagoria that yawned before him like a peopled hell. Afterwards, he was never wholly sure of certain things, and could remember very little of the actual manner in which the work of the men and their assistants was being carried on. Dim, dubious, bat-like creatures seemed to be flitting to and fro between one of the stone vats and the group that toiled like sculptors, clothing the bony feet with a reddish plasm, which they applied and molded like so much clay. Gaspard thought, but was not certain later, that this plasm, which gleamed as if with mingled blood and fire, was being brought from the rosy litten vat and vessels borne by the claws of the shadowy flying creatures. None of them, however, approached the other vat, whose wannish light was momentarily enfeebled, as if it were dying down. He looked for the minikin figure of the fair, whom he could not distinguish in the crowded scene. Sick necromancer, if he had not already succumbed to the little-known disease that had long wasted him like an inward flame, was no doubt hidden from view by the colossal skeleton and was perhaps directing the labors of the men and demons from his couch. Spellbound on that precarious ledge, the watcher failed to hear the furtive, cat-like feet that were climbing behind him on the ruinous stairs. Too late, he heard the clink of a loose fragment close upon his heels, and turning in startlement, he toppled into sheer oblivion beneath the impact of a cudgel-like blow, and did not even know that the beginning fall of his body towards the courtyard had been arrested by his assailant's arms. Dun, dun, dun! Just everything about that is cool. And I even love the little detail of the whoever hit him catching him before he falls mm-hmm. into the courtyard. That's just a great little thing that didn't need to be there, but awesome. I have a question for Mr. Smith. Where did the teeth come from? What are they made out of? I get the rest. Like, Did they melt down bone to shape teeth? Are the teeth made of bones? Nobody's got teeth to fit a hundred foot tall giant. I'm just putting that out there. See, I think we're going to get more into this discussion later, but let's just tease it here. I think that they've melted down everything. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. they've melted the bone and they've melted the flesh and they're remaking giant bones and giant teeth and giant everything out of the bones. And they're making flesh out of the, out of the flesh. I was going to make, I was going to make a case that 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 was why there was a white and a red vat. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case because this white vat, which is never explained, no. 
it's like nobody's touching it. They keep bringing and they bring it up at least once. Well, if they've already if they've already cast all the bones though, when they've got the skeleton done, oh, maybe yeah, they're done true. with the white bat. That's just boiling down. That's true. I think in my I like mind, your theory. In my mind, for some reason, the white vat. I mean, it, it might it might be that. I also feel like the white vat might have something to do with the process by which the like final part of the clauses comes together, which I won't say because it's in the second part of the story. Yeah, that's what um, I was. I was. That's kind of what I was thinking as well. It's hard to say, regardless of the fact. Like, I uh, I also love this story because it's kind of like Smith knew he had a great thing in this image, and he goes back to it. I think maybe even a third time. And it's like people come into the place, they see a horrible thing, a little bit of it. And then Gaspard comes in and sees this horrible thing, but now we see more of it. And like, he sort of, he does this great job of returning to this. What is it? Fundamentally, we've already had this scene twice and we actually get it a third time where people sneak in and see what's going on. But it didn't strike me as a bad way to structure a story just because every time they come back, he does manage to make it worse and exciting and, uh, as thrilling. Uh, I, I looked up because it says it's 100 feet tall. Well, I guess we should just go ahead and say he's making a giant. He's making a colossus. Yes. We didn't say that. Like he's the fair is using the bodies of the dead uh, to create himself basically a giant flesh golem in some sense, like which is just it's so awesome. It's just a great idea. I mean, obviously, we're all kind of stunned and speechless. But it's just. I'm just gonna keep saying it's awesome. It's, it I don't is have any awesome. other words. It is awesome in like the dictionary definition of awesome. I uh, I looked up because it says it's 100 feet tall. How big that would be, and it's about uh, 10 stories tall. And then I was trying to find a famous thing that's 10 stories tall, but failed. Although I didn't look up the obvious thing, which would be the Statue of Liberty. How tall is the Statue of Liberty? 151 feet. So it's taller than the Colossus. But I don't know if that includes the base. Well, but the ha- Colossus is at least two-thirds as tall as the Statue of Liberty. Then. That's yeah. frightening. All right, so that's the end of what we're going to cover of Colossus of Yalorn in this podcast. Is there anything else we want to cover or say about it? Nope. All right. Tune in next time when the Colossus will probably go on a rampage, although I don't want to say too much about it. Let's um let's play a Clark Ashton Smith drinking game in this one. Okay, what's the drinking game? Uh, what's the drinking? Whenever the words necromancer or necro anything with necro whatever in it. Anything mm-hmm. anytime he mentions Athenors, which I have no idea what they are, baleful or mephite or mephitic, you mephitic? have to drink. <laughs> okay. I need a beer. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say drink my water. I don't know. Yeah.